I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll discuss the Semiconductor Export Controls update, the US-EU Summit, and the TRIPS waiver. All that and more on Trade Guys. Hi, Trade Guys. Good to see you both today. Good to be seen. Having a very holistic view of trade topics, from economic security to high-level transatlantic talks, as well as IP discussions. So, we have lots to talk about. Let's jump right into it. Let's start with the recent export controls update. The Department of Commerce released a new package of rules on semiconductor controls a little bit over a year after the release of the famous October 7th rules. So guys, how are the new semiconductor control rules expanding on the initial rules released last October 7th? Well, it's a lesson in what we've talked about on past occasions here that every time the government takes an action like this, there is always unexpected collateral damage and also always downstream effects that nobody anticipated. So the regulation of last October produced collateral damage and downstream effects. It also created incentives to circumvent and work around. The most prominent one was NVIDIA's announcement that since their AI chips had been placed under controls last October, they developed two new chips, the A100 and the A800, that were outside the control parameters and which they were going to continue to sell to the Chinese. So a lot of this, these new rules, there are three of them to be specific. One of them adds 13 more companies to the end of these lists, so we won't address that in detail. But the other two total about 400 pages, which I think is more than the last more than a year ago, which means that this is getting more complicated. It's not getting simpler, even though if you read the rationale for what they've done, it is to simplify. So uh, you can decide for yourself if it really is a simplification or not. Mostly what they are doing is clarifying issues or are trying to clarify things that were confusing in the previous rule and dealing with with circumvention. To the extent that they are plugging holes, if you will, and they've plugged the NVIDIA hole is is the most prominent one, you could say that it's an expansion, but it really continues to be focused primarily on AI chips and the tools to make them. So if you were worried that they were going to go into sort of non-chip areas or pick up, you know, older generations of chips, that's not really what this does. It's designed to uh, close some loopholes and make some other changes. Since it's 400 pages, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but let me focus on a couple things that leaped out. One, they include a revised control parameter in order to catch the A800 and A100 chips, which is based on performance density, which, you know, how much stuff you've packed onto the chip, basically. And the consequence of, of including that variable captures those chips. I think the other important thing they did that'll probably be most important in the long run is an anti-circumvention issue. They've added about 40 more countries to the list of uh, countries that are subject to control. Originally, it was China and Macau, and now they've picked up countries on 
several of the commerce lives, basically countries that are subject to an arms embargo. And the reason is that there was growing evidence of transshipment, that exports were going to third countries and then being reshipped to China. And it sounds like a lot of the evidence was related to these particular countries. And as you might imagine, since their country is already subject to arms embargo, they are not our friends, and they are probably more China's friends. And so that's an obvious place to look if you're looking for circumvention. So they've increased the universe of, of countries to which the controls apply. In a lot of those countries, however, the expansion has been accompanied by a presumption of approval. So it's not a death sentence for exports to these countries, but it is a requirement now for people to come in and get licenses, whereas before uh, they didn't necessarily have to do that. They've also created the new category, and this is a thing that uh, I've seen before at uh, BIS, which is a little bit worrisome. It's a notification process. So for a category of chips, which they've characterized as gray zone chips, which means still we're in the AI universe here, chips that are fall outside the control parameters, they are not imposing a licensing requirement, but they are requiring exporters to notify BIS when they export these chips. This is an information gathering exercise that might in the future, depending upon what information they get, lead to uh, licensing requirements going forward. Right now, it is it's an information exercise. This has come up before. When I was at the National Foreign Trade Council, we went, went, once went to visit at BIS to complain about a different case, not chips related, as it happens, where they had developed a very expansive definition of what they wanted to control. Basically, we were saying that telling them that their definition was so broad and encompassed a whole bunch of things that they really don't care about uh, and that we knew they didn't care about. And the answer was enlightening, and it's, it's relevant to this new rule. Their answer was, we know that, we know that and uh, all those licenses are going to get approved. Uh, we just want to know what's going on. So it's an information gathering exercise. If one wanted to split hairs, I think you could say that's not really what the statute contemplated. But I'm not sure that anybody's going to complain about it, because since it's not a licensing requirement, an information requirement, it's kind of a low, lower level of, of control. Finally, they have, done, they have done some clarifying of the U.S. persons rule. And as you may recall, the U.S. persons rule related to restrictions on individuals under the jurisdiction, within the jurisdiction of the United States going to, for example, Korean fab plants in China and helping, assisting in the production there of chips in China. The original control was, people discovered, was really broad and created a lot of uncertainty about which people were covered. And obviously, if you were an engineer that was actually doing something with chip design or manufacturing or working on the tools, that you could understand that. But if you were an administrative person, a secretary or somebody who delivered the mail, it raised the question of whether you were also covered by the control. So they've included language to make more specific exactly who they have in mind. Finally, a commercial. We are at the Scholl Chair publishing a short critical questions piece on this subject that goes into greater detail on what the uh, controls do to watch for it on our website if you want to really get into the weeds. I could also say, based on experience, that every law firm in town with a compliance practice in the next two weeks will produce their own version of what the rules encompass so if you have any doubts, stay tuned. And if you don't know which law firms to tune into, send us an email and we'll tell you. Scott, over to you. Well, you know, it's very difficult to add value uh, when you're, you're either, your partner in the podcast 
ran this particular bureau at the Commerce Department for eight years. So Bill provided all the substance here. I want to make two comments on difficulty of what's what's being attempted here. First, these devices are not only in everything, but they're moving very fast in terms of technological improvement. I don't know if the if the fame Moore's law is still in effect, but no one's repealed it. And chips get faster and cheaper all the time. That's the nature of the information technology device business. So it would be very hard to keep these rules current enough to control the leading edge and not so broad as to destroy commerce. So it's a tough challenge that the regulators have. The second thing is countermeasures will will include China's indigenous innovation program. And what I watch for is the happier that the China hawks are about the tightness of the controls, the more concerned I get about China just doing what it's always done, which is to extend its its efforts into the entire production chain and uh, start innovating for their own use. And sooner or later, all the controls do is restrict sales from friendly countries. So tough. It's, it, it's a tough business. Uh, we've chosen it. Not a bad job, but uh, it'll be so fast changing that it'll be hard for it to be effective or remain effective. It's going to add, I think, impetus to something we've discussed before, which is the design out problem. I think if you're a regular listener, you'll recall that we said when the first rule came out a year ago that it raised sort of three questions, effect on U.S. company revenues, effect on Chinese policy, and effect on design out. And we speculated at the time what the answers to those questions were. There's evidence now that's beginning to pile up, uh, still partial, but it appears, uh, are these rules going to have a negative effect on U.S. company revenue? Yes. Initially small, because we're really still talking about AI chip, chips here, but large language learning model chips. But as technology evolves and the control line, the line of control remains the same, the universe of stuff that's covered gets bigger and bigger. And so the revenue hit on companies is going to get bigger and bigger. Will it affect Chinese policy? It appears no, because they'd already decided to develop indigenously anyway, as Scott was alluding to. It may have accelerated their efforts and increased their expenditures because this rule kind of caught them short. The third one is the most interesting one, which is, is it going to create an incentive to create products that don't contain any American technology or any American parts or components? Because if you do, then they're exempt from uh, or outside the scope of U.S. controls. And that's relevant not only for what China might do, but it's also relevant for third countries. And incentives we may be creating for third countries, Europe, Japan, Korea, to do the same thing. And, you know, the Huawei chip that we discussed a week or so ago is a good example of exactly that. You know, China has come up with a workaround. They did it with older technology, not theirs, by the way, it's Western tools, but they did it. And you're probably going to see more of, more of that. And I think that one of the impacts of these controls is that it creates more of an incentive to do that. And I asked the administration at one point last year if they thought about that. And the answer was, yes, they had thought about it. But it doesn't appear that that they changed anything as a result of their thinking. As part of the team that authored the piece that Bill mentioned, the rules were indeed hundreds of pages long. If that's simplifying on BIS's part, I'd like to see what happens when they try to complicate things. Anyway, let's switch gears into the upcoming EU-US summit. President Biden is going to welcome President Charles Michel of the European Council. 
EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell and President Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission to the White House on Friday, October 20th. That will be the second US-EU summit since President Biden took office. There is, as always, a lot to discuss in the transatlantic relationship. So guys, what are trade-related priorities uh, that the United States and the EU are aiming to talk about? Well, I've been talking to Europeans, so I'm getting only one one side of the coin. There was supposed to be a briefing from the, the U.S. National Security Council a day or so prior to this podcast, and it got canceled. So I have a one-sided view, but it's pretty clear from talking to the Europeans that there are two trade items at the top of their agenda. I think probably the top of the agenda is Ukraine and things that we don't generally spend an enormous amount of time on here. The top trade things are, are the obvious, the Green Steel Agreement and the Critical Minerals Agreement. And I would have to say in both cases, the Europeans are pessimistic about a, a successful outcome, at least on October 20th. I can't go into a lot of detail. I think that I just say on, on the Steel Agreement, the conversations, I think, over the summer evolved in the direction of a greater focus on the issue of Chinese overcapacity and what to do about it. I think the European perspective on the Green part of this is they have an, an answer. It's the carbon border adjustment measure, the CBAM, which is now in effect as of October 1. Uh, nobody has to pay yet, but they have to report. So it's going into effect. It's being implemented and they seem to be happy to let it just be implemented and deal with the question of, you know, how is the United States going to react to that, you know, later and separately, I guess, because right now it applies to everybody, including the United States. So the conversation has been mostly about what do we do about Chinese overcapacity? And this is one of these frustrating issues that we often have with the EU, which is that both sides seem to have the same objective, which is to do something about it, but can't seem to get to agreement either on exactly what to do about it, or in this case, can't seem to get to agreement on the process or the, the legal basis for taking an action. And that's not unimportant because doing something about it in this case is probably going to mean tariffs, which is exactly what the Europeans would like to get rid of as far as the Trump tariffs are concerned. But if you want to do something about Chinese overcapacity, the effective trade tool here is tariffs. There are existing mechanisms for doing that, mostly involving ours and their subsidies, countervailing duty laws and dumping laws. And I think it will not be hard to make a case that Chinese have subsidized their steel. And it probably wouldn't make uh, be hard to make a case that they're dumping their steel. We did that here a number of years ago and, and knocked them way down in the market. They were number one or two in, in imports, I think, 10 or 12 years ago. And now they're not in the top 10 anymore, I don't believe. And that was because of our use of existing older trade tools. The EU hasn't used those tools quite as much as we have. So they have to kind of figure out how they want to do it. There is always the question of how much of this is going to be done at the commission level and how much is going to be done by the individual countries. Unlike export controls, which is a member state issue, this is a commission issue. So that piece of it may be solved. But trying to figure out a way to do this that is both consistent with existing law in the United States and in the EU, and also consistent with the WTO, has proved to be a challenge that they don't seem to have been able to surmount yet. And the other challenge seems to be, I mean, I hate to say it, although it's not a, it's not really new. I think there's kind of a failure of trust here. One of the issues is, you know, the U.S. in this case is kind of the demandeur. We've imposed tariffs. The Europeans want to get out from under the tariffs. 
So the U.S. position is, well, if you do the following things, you can get out from under the tariffs. So that's worth having a discussion. But then there's a second issue that I think is more central to the problem, which is how do we make sure that, that any commitments made are actually implemented, carried out? And what do we, the United States, do if they're not? And that's a more difficult issue because it involves trust. You know, if you have confidence that the Europeans will do what they've, what they'll promise to do, fine. But if you don't, it's very difficult to reach an agreement. When I was in graduate school, I'll digress with a little story here. We had a professor who would, he was Czech actually, and he would lean back in his chair and close his eyes and make a little pyramid with his fingers. And he would come out with things like, the only way to disarm is to disarm. And it took an entire semester for us to figure out what he meant. But what he meant was that if the parties trust each other, then the details of the agreement doesn't matter because you have confidence that they'll keep their word. And if the parties don't trust each other, there is no agreement you can produce that will create the trust. And I've always sort of remembered that. And I'm worried that we may be falling into the same situation here, that each side is fundamentally not confident that the other is going to do what it says it's going to do. In a way, same with critical minerals, you know, you would think that, well, why don't we just do with Europe what we did with Japan? You know, that we got an agreement with Japan. And I think two issues seem to be getting in the way. One is that the congressional reaction to what we did with Japan was negative, sharply negative, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, because they felt not consulted. They always feel not consulted, but this time seems to be worse than usual. Also, I think because they felt that the statute, this is the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, refers to countries with which we have free trade agreements. And it's, it has been very hard to convince members of Congress that what we negotiate with Japan constitutes a free trade agreement. And while the term is undefined in the IRA or in U.S. law, as it happens, you know, it's one of these things sort of like Justice Stewart said about pornography. You know it when you see it. And, you know, people looked at this, the Japan agreement and says, that's not it. You know, that's not an FTA. So if the administration intends to do the same thing with Europe, they're going to run into the same uh, difficulty with the Congress. And I think both sides worry about that. They don't want to be crosswise with the Congress. And then there's the question of whether uh, just doing what we did with Japan is enough or whether the United States wants to do additional things. And I think there's concern about that as well. Well, look, there's uh, about 30 years or so of disappointment in, in my background when it comes to USEU coordination activities of all sorts. Most of that in the early days was at the corporate level. And you know, because I worked for a big global company that wasn't always global, in fact, in the 1980s, it was the company that I worked for was primarily a US company with international operations, uh, with most of specifically the research activities directed in and about the U.S. But companies changed. And uh, one of the things that led to was an effort to align research objectives and to better coordinate activities. That's that's a, always a good thing to do. Uh, it's usually efficient. It's usually good for the consumer. And it certainly was tried a lot. That tends to be what the U.S. and the EU do on an institutional level as well. There's just a massive amount of two-way trade. There is very large cross-investment. The stocks and flows are very high. We, we are each other's best customers in some ways. And yet it's very difficult to get to a conclusion that satisfies everybody and work this out. It's almost like, yeah, we had the birthday party, but the, the birthday girl didn't get the pony. And so there's some disappointment by the end. And so 
this happened a lot. I was I worked in the law in the laundry detergent business, and there not only were the consumers and their their interests a little different, and the products were different. The very machines were different. The, the, the equipment that was used in the U.S. was completely different than what was used in Europe. And so it was incredibly difficult to resolve any of these issues. And then when you the ones you got resolved, you weren't sure you were, they, they were worth anything by the time you were done. So that tends to be what happens with these summits. I think recently uh, there's been a suspicion the European agenda is mostly about putting constraints on the U.S. They've, they've never been happy with our what they call cowboy capitalism, and uh, they, they wouldn't mind restraining uh, our growth in some ways. And there's a real difference these days if you look over a long period of time. France and Germany had real per capita growth over the last 30 years of between 35 and 40 percent. The U.S. grew 57 percent, real per capita GDP. So it's a big gap and not getting smaller. And uh, so it's one of those things that you've you got to make sure that when you make these agreements that you're clear that there's benefit on both sides. I think it's one of the reasons they don't come together. There are a lot of distractions this time. There are real concerns about the current economic conditions in both the U.S. and Europe. So I think we're in for another party with no pony. Thanks, guys. Uh, finally, I want to turn to our th- final topic, which is the TRIPS waiver expansion. The uh, U.S. International Trade Commission released a sprawling report last week analyzing market dynamics concerning the question of whether to extend the waiver of IP rights for COVID-19 technologies under the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. So trade guys, can you give us some background information? Can you remind us what the TRIPS waiver was about and how this new ITC report fits into that picture? Sure. Look, uh, the U.S. International Trade Commission is a one of the many uh, government uh, commissions that operates, and they do some very fine research. It's some of the best trade research. There are six commissioners, three Republican, three Democrat. On the uh, Shoal Chair is Meredith Brockbent. She was a former Shoal Chair and a former commissioner of the USITC, but the commission staff is filled with economists who really do very good work. So I would start with the point that an ITC report is usually of uh, very high quality. In this case, it was definitely broad. Sprawling is probably the right word for it. And we we have a number of two-handed economists who wrote the final draft because there's a lot of on one hand, on the other hand. The too long didn't read uh, conclusion for our audience is There's not much evidence that the waiver of intellectual property rights, the so-called TRIPS waiver, which allowed compulsory licensing of the production of COVID-19 vaccines and uh, biologicals, there's not much evidence uh, for or against the effectiveness of that particular action. Now, I will report first it was a high-profile action. It was one of the key conclusions from the WTO ministerial in uh, June 2022. So, if you get the timing right, this was COVID got prominence in March, roughly March of 2020. Vaccines were available sort of end 2020, beginning 2021. And so this was 2022 that the uh, ministerial declaration included uh, this TRIPS waiver. TRIPS is the trade-related intellectual property standards. It was controversial at the time, uh, but I will tell you that in this case, the trade guys told you so. Back when this was being debated and the administration seemed to be prepared to make concessions on uh, compulsory licensing, we basically said that's not the problem. You are not solving the problem that is preventing uh, the vaccines from getting in patients that need them or want them, that it's really a, uh, a distribution or a supply problem that was 
most urgent, not a production problem per se. Uh, therefore, you know, what happened is the TRIPS waiver went through and uh, it solved a political problem. It solved a problem of, of constituents and, and supporters who were complaining about the waiver. But it didn't really solve any health problem. It didn't solve the supply problem. Just so you know, about the time this waiver was agreed by the ministers at Geneva, there was reporting basically at the same time that about 10% of all doses that had been made of the COVID-19 vaccine were being disposed because they were expiring before they got to the consumers. So that's something like 80, 90 million doses in the United States and 1.1 billion doses worldwide, which is thrown away because it was not the manufacturer of the vaccine that was at the, the issue. So that part we were right about. Sadly, the fact that this was contemporaneous reporting meant that the experts and the, the officials either knew or should have known that the waiver itself was not going to solve any problems, which is a disappointment. Now, what it leaves it with is, well, it didn't do much, but we now have a bad precedent. And as the lawyers say, hard cases make bad law. This was a hard case when the argument started. Nobody knew what to do about this, this virus. We were looking for anything, and everybody wanted to solve it at the same time. And in our panic, uh, we we did probably did the best we could, but it didn't really have much of an effect. So that's, that's I think, where we are. It, it will make it easier, I think, to do a waiver the next time. It'll probably be equally ineffective, but harmful to the interests of, of uh, research-based industries, uh, pharmaceuticals not being the only one that rely on uh, on trips. So the summary is that I just gave is fairly disappointing. In any case, Bill, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to, to be contrary about, but it's hard not to be cynical about it on both sides. The real agenda of the proponents was to knock holes in trips, the trade related intellectual property provisions of grew out of the Uruguay round, and make it easier for developing countries to break patents and issue compulsory licenses. I mean they've been trying to do that for years. They've been trying to do that for yeah, twenty years, thirty years. COVID provided a good excuse because it was a pandemic and an emergency and people were dying. But the real agenda, I think, was not about COVID. It was broader than that. On the other side, I can't help but think that the strategy of the opponents may very well have been, you know, let's just drag this out as long as we possibly can, because sooner or later, the pandemic will be over and it won't matter anymore. And of course, it, it matters in the sense that we'll have more pandemics. Uh, or we'll have more more situations where this is relevant, but the immediate emergency is over, and you know most countries have have declared that it's over. And I think much of the argument at the WTO is going to be, why do we need to do this now? You know, maybe you can make the case that we should have done it three years ago, but we didn't, and now we don't need to do it. So let's just let it be, leave things the way they are. The ITC report, it seems to me, got an awful lot of information, and if people are deeply into this issue, I encourage you to take a look at it. I wouldn't say that its observations were earth-shaking. I mean, it, it concluded that, you know, when it comes to drug distribution, poor countries get the short end of the stick. Not exactly a revelation. They did conclude that research done largely by others suggests that compulsory licenses do have the effect of lowering prices and increase access, increasing access to, to drugs, which is what they were what was supposed to happen. So in that sense, it works. But they also concluded that protecting patents boosts innovation, which is the argument of the other side, and that there are some situations that they uh, identified where you know not having compulsory licenses has actually enabled more rapid distribution of, of the product in countries. So it's a mixed report that I wouldn't, it doesn't come down definitively on one side or the other of the debate. It provides a lot of information 
probably information that both sides can point to and further bolster in their position. And because, you know, I think the real issue is, you know, uh, kneecapping trips, the debate's going to go on whether the pandemic is over or not. Well, Bill, that's a really good point, because as I recall, during the pandemic, there were a tremendous number of, of government interventions of all sorts, most of them having nothing to do with intellectual property. All right. For instance, early days, there was a lot of difficulty exporting personal protective equipment, masks and gloves and you know hospital gowns and those kinds of things. Uh, the EU single market basically disappeared for about a month and border checks were put in place to prevent the movement of something that hadn't been on patents in, in decades or maybe never was. And for me, the big issue of COVID is not did TRIPS waiver work, but did anything, any of these interventions work? <laughs> okay. And I hope somebody researches that at some point. But in the meantime, I think Bill is absolutely right that that the this was an opportunity to attack something that uh, the proponents of TRIPS, TRIPS uh, waivers have been trying for a long time. They got it this time. Didn't do patients much good. We'll see how the rules-based system uh, survives, but another fine mess we've gotten into. The other point the study makes, which I think is a good one, is that the ministerial decision that started this current round of discussions referred to include adding therapeutics and diagnostics to uh, the waiver because the waiver that was approved in the previous ministerial was essentially for the vaccines. But the problem seems to be that nobody has clearly defined diagnostics and therapeutics. And that's created kind of a whole sub-conversation about what is included within those terms. And of course, if you're the proponents of a waiver, meaning really the Indians and South Africans primarily, you want to define that as almost anything associated with medical care. If you are an opponent, then you want to have that term defined very narrowly. And that's going to complicate reaching agreement on this because if you you, uh, you can't waive anything unless you have agreement on what it is that you're waiving. Yes. If you want to talk about diagnostic equipment, it's usually not the patent that's the problem. In fact, I remember with ventilators, you had auto companies prepared to you jump through hoops to make ventilators. And one of the ventilator companies, at least, it may have been Medtronic, but my memory's uh, flawed. Uh, but one of them just basically gave people the plans. Here's how you build them. And they still didn't do it. <laughs> they, nobody could. It, it just... These are complicated devices that you got to scale up. It's the, the sophistication involved is so great that even with a waiver, it's, it's almost impossible to, uh, to get uh, what you dream of getting, which is uh, a manufacturing firm taking in somebody else's plans and building something useful on a short timetable. Almost never happens. Again, I need to highlight that the ITC report was also north of 400 pages. So thanks for all the homework this week, guys. Regardless... Bill, Scott. For those of you that have nothing to do, we've got reading for you. <laughs> That's right. Thanks a lot for another great episode, guys. I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.